real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Romas with you. Today we are going to be talking about health, building strength, and incorporating some spirituality all within the context of policing. For that, I have Matt Domiancic on the program. Matt is a medically retired police officer who worked across several disciplines while in the career. He's been in patrol, SWAT, training sections, or several training sections, and peer support. Matt has his Master's of Science in Forensic Science uh, and also a Sports Psychology and a Master's in Pastoral Theology. So that's a first for this program. <laughs> Matt is now a one-man nonprofit police chaplain and also a peer support, wellness, and resiliency advocate for first responders and veterans. You can find out more about Matt and his mission at tacticalchaplain.com, which I will throw up a link to in the episode description and some of the social media uh, after. But um, yeah, welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity to chat. Uh, one thing I want to point out right off the bat, when you sent over some of your background, uh, you have a Canadian connection. Yes. Maybe we can just kind of tell people what that is. So when I was little, I lived in New Brunswick for a couple of years. My dad worked in uh, for a nuclear company. Oh. And I still go to Canada on a regular basis. Uh, bear hunting. Yeah. And when I was a strength coach at Yale, a lot of the hockey players obviously were from Canada that I was a strength coach for and in ministry with, uh, especially one of my closest friends, Stacy Bauman, was a great hockey player at Yale and has been in sports ministry forever after his minor league career. And uh, even at Colgate University, which I went to Air Force Academy two years of undergrad, okay. played football, power lifted. I wasn't going to be able to fly, so I transferred to Colgate University. And there was a number of football players there from Canada as well that I became close friends with, including uh, J.C. Moreau, who was a strength coach at Iowa for a number of years and now has his own private facility. So, okay. And Canadians are down to earth <laughs> and don't get caught up. Or I thought so. They didn't get caught up in as much drama as us Americans, but now I've been hearing from law enforcement up there, there's a lot of craziness as well. So it yeah. kind of scares me. You know what? Um, I've had a, a number of American guests on here, especially in the law enforcement realm. And the way I've described it is Americans kind of play in like these really wide goalposts. They're like 90-10, right? It's just craziness. And it can go like to the extremes. And Canadians are kind of like 60-40. And we pick up on a lot, like most of our media is American. Most of our channels are American, the content we see on Netflix. Um, so we just ride like the American waves. So as the Americans go one direction, they just kind of pick us up and they pull us with them to a certain point. <laughs> and then we stop and then they keep going and do the craziness. And then it comes back and it just picks us up and brings it back. I feel like that's how it works in my mind anyways. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, no, that's pretty cool. Uh, it, there's so many connections there. And um, I was saying just before we fired up, uh, previous guest I had on, Dr. Springer, mm -hmm. uh, she recommended you. So that's how we kind of connected through her. Mm -hmm. so I'm glad that she could uh, uh, connect us and hopefully she gets to listen to this. So um, yeah, give her a shout out. All right. So uh, I kind of start at the beginning. 
with most people. Uh, maybe just tell us a bit about you and growing up and, and just your direction in life, how you got to where you are today. Okay. God, that's a long story. <laughs> as quick as possible, like born around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Beaver County, Pennsylvania, which is steel mill towns known for famous football players like Joe Namath, Tony Dorsett. I played against Ty Law, Mike Ditka. Oh, wow. um, that's where mom and dad are from. Lived in Canada for two years when I was very small. Then we came back to Ohio. Grew up in Northeast Ohio, small towns near Canton, Uniontown, Hartville, Ohio where it was sports, hunting, riding bikes, outdoor sports, really a wholesome, like amazing utopian childhood compared to what like is going on now. Like we never were inside. All we did were outside with your buddies playing. Um, and then in ninth grade, moved back to Beaver County to Pennsylvania because that's mom and dad kind of wanted to go back. My life was pretty much football, lifting, nutrition, even in high school, shooting and hunting with my dad. Um, and that's a very blue collar conservative area as well. Yeah. And I think very good values, work ethic, service oriented. I just got back from a week and a half there with mom and dad. And it's like, there's more nature, more peace. People are friendlier, more like Canada. I mean, compared to LA, San Diego is a little bit better than LA, DC, Connecticut. These other places I've lived are faster paced and less personal with, I would say, not mm. as good cultural values, not mm -hmm. as strong communities. So Ohio, Pennsylvania, great. My first two years of undergrad were at the Air Force Academy. And like I said, to play football and powerlifting, wasn't going to fly. So transferred to Colgate. My dad was upset. Harvard, Cornell, and Colgate all wanted me for football. And back then, if you switch schools, if you went Division 1A to Division 1A, you had to sit out. Oh. So I had to go Division One AA. Now they can just switch schools every year if they want. Okay. Um, but my my dad's also really strict and was a hard driver on education and everything in life. Like if God's given you potential in anything, your gift back to God is fulfilling that potential. To those who have been given much, much will be expected. So like he was so upset I was leaving Air Force and I and I could have transferred to Navy or West Point because I had appointments there as well. But once I found out, you have to start all over. For those that are not familiar with military school, boot camp, freshman year are not fun. Uh, so oh I didn't yeah. want to go from junior year somewhere to back to boot camp. So, And I didn't like Harvard, Cornell, or Colgate. But Colgate is in the middle of nowhere. It's beautiful nature. And there were a lot of guys from Pittsburgh and, like I said, Canada. And on the sports teams, at least, there's a lot of... yeah. Wealthy people, but the sports teams at the Patriot and Ivy Leagues are a lot of blue collar or lower income people that use sports to get a good education. So I ended up at Colgate, um, finished there, and I'm going really, really fast. Thought I wanted to be in the FBI or the feds growing up. Mm -hmm. So my dad had always told me, go to law school. Like it's go to law school, be an accountant, uh, be a linguist. And I was looking into law school and there was this retired federal agent, retired Coast Guard officer that was like 60 or 70 auditing a Shakespeare class at Colgate. And we became buddies. And he was like, <laughs> man, do you want to be a glorified librarian? And he was a lawyer. And he was like, if, you don't, if you're going to go to law school just to be a federal agent, you're going to be miserable. The next big mm -hmm. thing is forensic science. This was before any CSI TV shows in the mid-90s. And so I looked up and there was only two schools back then, John Jay and New York City and University of New Haven, 
where I ended up going for forensic science under Dr. Henry Lee, who did the John Benet Ramsey case, the OJ Simpson, like very renowned forensic scientist. And then while I was in grad school for forensic science, over the summer, you had to do so many hours of an internship in a crime lab. Yeah. And a lot, and you go to a crime lab and you're a grad student, you're not going to touch anything. And I knew I didn't want to be in a crime lab. And it's a longer story connected to another Canadian. I didn't tell you this. <laughs> when, I, when I was in grad school, I was doing MMA before it was MMA. Yeah. And I was training with Vinny Giordano, who does documentaries on different martial arts from different countries. And he introduced me to Tony Blauer. You familiar with Tony Blauer? I, the last name sounds familiar. The Spear System. He's a Canadian martial artist okay. that's famous for training police officers and special operations. It's called the Spear System. He's also now tied tight into CrossFit. Um, but I started training with Tony Blauer while I was in grad school. And then I found out about contract training facilities like Blackwater Lodge, or there's a whole lot of them now. So when the Middle East was hot, before units went over, there was ex-special forces guys that would be running these centers to go through like brush up on CQB, sniper, tactical handgun, carbine. So really long story short. I won't go into it, but I was supposed to be at Blackwater Lodge with Navy SEALs. I had stopped in West Virginia at a place called Storm Mountain Training Center. Mm. Rod Ryan was the owner, former Special Forces Green Beret, former DC SWAT. And I ended up going through a five-day air assault course, which was repelling and fast rope with a bunch of Special Forces and SWAT guys. And he was like, you're going to go hold a clipboard for squids all summer or you want to stay here and train like a man? I'm like, (laughs) uh... He's like, you, you can live underneath the, the gun store and eat meals with my family. And whatever units or teams or individuals come in, you're just going to go through the courses. So for three months straight, as a forensic science grad student, I repeated sniper schools, CQB, tactical handgun, shotgun, carbine. And the few federal agents that came through were not like the TV shows and the movies. Yeah, It was like the metropolitan police officers and enlisted special operations guys that I jive with. They were more like my football buddies, so to speak. And long story short, I ended up being like, man, I don't think I really want to be a federal agent. And and some of the federal agents I met that seemed cool through that and through grad school. And I used to do, you know, even before I was a cop, go to jujitsu for cops seminars or shooting courses with cops. Some of the coolest federal agents were guys that used to be cops and said, being a cop, at least back then, not now. Back then, it was like, it's way more enjoyable and you'll learn a lot more being a cop than you will just going straight into a federal agency. Yeah, I could see that. So so it, t- it totally shifted. And uh, there's longer stories behind quick jobs in corporate America because I ended up, you know what? I don't think I want to be a fed. I thought I might want to be a priest. I was doing the sports ministry at Yale. And I thought I might want to be a psychologist, which is something I still, at some point, may go back to school to be a therapist if I could get a full ride, but I'm burned out on school. (laughs) Uh, And most academics are not very law enforcement friendly. But um, I was like, being a cop is a way to learn about psychology and spirituality and whether I end up in full-time ministry, which I thought either was sports ministry as a priest back then, I was kind of discerning that. Or if I end up a therapist or a psychologist, for which many of my close friends and some of my, one of my, my best friend in my life is a theologian and a psychologist, but a lot of them just went to, you know, master's and or master's PhD and then hang a shingle. 
Okay. And there's some great, great therapists, but I, I grew up in Ohio, Pennsylvania. Mom and dad are still married. Don't drink, don't smoke. I went to very good undergraduate schools, got to go to grad school. And I'm like, can you really learn about helping people through trauma and addiction and violence and abuse just from a textbook? Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, if I became a police officer, it's a great form of ministry because everybody's hurting. Everybody's having a bad day. Yeah. The victims and the criminals. So what an opportunity to love on people. And if you want to learn about psychology and spirituality and theology, like where it's not black and white, dude, cops are seeing the worst of the worst. So long story short, I ended up being a police officer as a form of doing ministry. And I decided based on like training with Tony Blauer and training at Storm Mountain, like let's be a SWAT guy. And even the federal SWAT teams, unless you're HRT and some of these other ones, I had met federal SWAT teams that said, hey, the metropolitan SWAT teams are way more active than us. Oh, really? Okay. You know, like the real police. Yeah. 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 Like the federal SWAT teams, unless you're HRT, which as I understand it is a lot of former special ops guys Yeah. that, you know, they're doing some gnarly stuff on a regular basis, but your regional federal SWAT team is not kicking a door down every day. And now I don't know how Canada it is or America, like we're not kicking doors down, surround and call out. Things are a lot different. But yes. back then yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be on a real SWAT team. I wanted to do ministry. You get to be on a team, the friendships, the camaraderie as a police officer. Yeah. 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 So um, well, maybe I'll jump in there because it, it, so a lot of the stuff you're talking about in the background uh, has to do with like military and there's uh, team games, like things that you're involved in. But you didn't say too much on the spirituality part or the ministry part. So where does that come in for you? Like, it, is this something your parents, like, are you going to church your whole life and, and this is a big part of your life? Or is that kind of later you pick up on that? Uh, it's been my whole life, but there's big, big seasons of transition. Mm. So grow up a cradle Catholic. I thought for the most part in Northeast Ohio and Western Pennsylvania, most people are Catholic. So when you hear the term cradle Catholic, it means you were born and raised. Everything's Catholicism. Yeah. And you go to church on Sunday. My dad's a very prayerful private man, not a Bible thumper at all, ethical, hardworking. I, I could talk for an hour about my father mm. and what a role model he was. And he would sit in his chair every day and pray for an hour. And even when I go home now, every day, an hour in his chair, you see him. He, I know he's praying because when I was a kid, I'd bug him. He'd be like, hey, this is my hour for God. Then I'm all yours. And now when we're sitting in the woods or driving to the mountains to the biggest gun store in PA, that's one of our little <laughs> ritual things. Every once in a while, I see him kind of bow his head and I know he's praying. But my dad has never talked to him. Like he doesn't evangelize, proselytize but he lives like an honest, loving, take care of his family, friends, and community. So yeah, it's more for him. He's not pushing it on people. Yeah. And that influences mm. people, I think, better than running around preaching. Yeah. And then you might be a hypocrite or you're judgmental of people like, okay, like I don't want anything to do with that. So church on Sundays, my mom sat by her bed when we were kids and said prayers before bed. So all this very, a lot of it is cultural and mm -hmm. habitual. And then I go to the Air Force Academy. And this is the first shift during boot camp, the first week or two you're on campus still before you go out to the woods in the tent and they teach you how to march and yes, sir, no, sir, sir, ma'am, may I ask a question. And they'd let you go to church for a half hour after dinner or go get yelled at. And there's this beautiful <laughs> chapel at the Air Force Academy, a very famous chapel. So I went to Catholic mass and hardly anybody was in there. 
And so at night, when you know I'm whispering to my roommate, like, where were you guys during church? They're like, ah, we're Protestant. I'm like, what's that mean? Mm. And they're like, ah, biggest difference is our pastors get married. I'm like, wow, really? That's so weird. I grew up in such a bubble. I thought everybody was either Catholic or didn't go to church. Yeah. But then I saw at Air Force at 18, a roommate was from Wagner, Oklahoma, Southern Baptist. Another roommate was from Adirondacks in New York, was Presbyterian. I had Mormons. Everybody, th- not everybody, but generally speaking, I realized even at 18, wow, there's over 30,000 Christian denominations. There's all these other religions. And wherever you grew up, for the most part, your parents will tell you, these are the rules to get to heaven. We're, we interpret scriptures the most correct way. Yeah. And we're the right tribe and everybody else is wrong. So come to us. And I'm like, there's no way that's right. Right. And I'm not going to tell everybody to be Catholic because I realize I don't even know everything about Catholic theology. So that was the first big shift for me to be like, wow, I kept going to church, but then I started asking questions of everybody from the different backgrounds. Fast forward at Air Force Academy. And there's a lot more to that, but I'm kind of speeding this up. So that started this exploration. I found out. Well, the first call you make after boot camp, uh, you get one call after boot camp. I call my mom and dad and I'm like, oh my God, there's Protestants here. Like, it's so weird. There's Mormons that don't have caffeine or candy. And my parents start laughing. Come to find out my dad's hundred percent Croatian Catholic. My mom's German Irish Methodist. They almost didn't get married because in Pittsburgh back then you had to marry your ethnicity and your Christian denomination. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So I had no idea, but. You know, so I'm like, what the heck? I, I transferred to Colgate. There's a large percentage of Jewish people at Colgate. I had no exposure to that. And of course, there's people that are like, well, this is what we believe and we think this is right. And maybe you're going to hell because you're not whatever Christian or other religion that I am. I tore my calf. I had a good football career at Colgate, but I tore the medial head of my left calf. Right after a game where in three quarters, I had 21 tackles as a middle linebacker. First game of the season of my senior year. They say I'm never going to run again. And I had quit drinking alcohol. I drank for a little bit at Colgate because at Air Force, you never got out. Like it was like prison. So you you didn't get to do the college thing, party. And I get to Colgate and I did it for a little bit, but I realized like, this is so immature. Yeah, Like I grew up so much at Air Force from the military school that I realized a lot of college kids are quite frankly like acting like idiots like cuz you go through a boot camp survival of asian resistance escape you go through a freshman year at a military academy like it's so serious it forces you to grow up and grow closer to people over real issues just like you grow closer to cops over facing like the realities yeah. of life well i think you're coming in with a much different perspective than a lot of people too though i mean a lot of people don't have that structure i guess it would be the word or the, okay. the the discipline coming into it. Like you're saying, there's a lot of people go through it and then they just go straight into the partying or, you know, drinking and doing whatever else. I feel like that's uh, a lot of what you see nowadays where just people kind of lack discipline. They think it's just all about me, right? Like immediate gratification, mm-hmm. uh, those type of yeah. themes. So yeah, I could see how you, like you're coming from a very, uh, you got like a very, defined path or at least things have kind of been set in in a way for you so you have like that vision ahead of time Mm -hmm. so for sure that's that's what kind of comes off yeah well yeah sports 
ethics, morality, spirituality, like nutrition. Yeah, like having goals and wanting to accomplish them, huge part of my life. I, I was, I mean, these are, I started working out hard in sixth grade, starting eating strict in seventh grade. Like I want to play D1 football, go to the military, be a federal agent. So yeah, having goals and discipline and a father that pushes you, but also with love and nourishment, super huge. Yeah. Uh, going back to that. So I have that great game, tear my calf and they say, I'm never going to run again. Well, I started drinking with a friend of mine on the team who got popped for steroids. Mm. Uh, that's a whole other funny <laughs> long story, but he was suspended that year. So I'm hurt. He's suspended and we're both like drinking together. And I realized I'm not drinking to have a good time. I'm self-medicating. I don't understand the deeper psychology behind it, but I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm depressed because I think I may never play football again. They didn't think I was going to heal. Mm -hmm. And if I don't heal, then I can't join the military again, or I can't be a federal agent. And I was probably clinically depressed without understanding clinical depression. And, you know, there's longer stories to doing the drinking. And, you know, I made out with two different girls in the same week, which maybe not a big deal for a lot of college people, but it was for me and how I was raised. And I'm like, I'm just not being like the best version of myself here. And it's all because I'm really worried that I'm never going to play football again, or I'm never going to get to be in the military or federal law enforcement. And I bought this book and it's a longer story, but I'm going to speed it up. I got a book, How to Talk to Your Angels. It was actually like hmm. very new agey spirituality, but I had a paragraph in there that we're going to have challenges and adversity in our life. And it's trying to teach us a lesson. This is also what fast forward to what the research is around post-traumatic growth. So bad things happen that may not be your fault. And if somebody's into theology, there's a book by a rabbi that's very famous that applies to Christians as well. When bad things happen to good people, yeah. and it goes through all the dumb, dumb things religious people say when you're hurting or suffering with good intentions, but it's not helpful. But I was reading this book and it said, you know, you can push things away. We can compartmentalize, we can self-medicate things that are painful, confusing, or frustrating. But if we don't chew on it, lean into it, there's going to be a lesson we didn't learn that's going to resurface in some area of our life again at a different point until we learn that lesson. Yeah. And I'm sitting there probably with a big chew, a skull in my mouth. And I had been drinking, like I said, and you know, fooling around with two different girls who were nice girls and great athletes. Like it wasn't like it was shady, but it was just not who I am yeah. honoring myself, my God, or these women. And I said, you know what? I don't know what it's like to really give your life to God. Cause this book was saying for the things that you can't control, you need to just fall to your knees, throw your hands in the air and say, I hand this over to God. And it just struck me. And I, and God spoke to me in a way that I can't explain. It wasn't a voice, but it was like, this is where I am. It talked about, we're going to keep trying to solve things our own way. I was trying to medicate my pain and figure out how to heal and just uh, was like, you know what? I got to figure out what it's like to really give your life to God. So I ended up going on this deep exploration. I, had a, I knew I had a professor that was practicing Jewish, one that was hardcore Catholic, one that was hardcore evangelical at a very liberal school. So they were known because they were people of faith. Because even back then at Colgate, religious professors were often people not of faith that kind of made fun of faith and taught oh, really? just academically that it was like, Oh yeah. yeah. Like, or, you know, you know, religion and faith is a crutch. It can't be 
scientifically or historically proven. Those are. Did you ever find it like any point that, because uh, you're talking about Catholicism, did you ever find at any point once you start learning about all these new ones or different ones, uh, did you ever kind of maybe think, maybe I don't believe in Catholicism anymore? Maybe this one kind of more uh, makes sense to me or applies more to me, whatever that might look like? You ever have that kind of questions or doubt? So this is what the 10-year journey was. So I talked to those three professors, one Catholic, evangelical, one Jewish. And I'm like, what does the word faith mean to you? What does it mean to give your life to God? And then I started driving 45 minutes to Syracuse to Walden Books because there wasn't the internet or bookstores back then like there are now. And I would grab different books on different spiritualities, different denominations, different, you know, popular Christian authors and read them. And then eventually, even after Colgate, longer stories, I started going to church three times a weekend. I always went to Catholic mass. Then I would go to one or two Protestant services. And then I would go to the meetings they had for new members. Mm -hmm. And I would be honest. Hey, I'm Catholic, but you're Methodist or you're this evangelical or you're this mega church. Like, why are you right? Because, you know, or you're Pentecostal, you're charismatic. There's all these flavors and genres of Christianity. And what I did for 10 years was ask myself and everyone else. I tried to study. And there's a quote that my parents had in our house as a kid. Never criticize a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. I'm like, all these different religious people, we're all ripping on each other or saying like, you know, at 18, I'm like, there's no way, you know, you're right. Mm -hmm. If you don't know your full theology and you don't know anything about me from Ohio and Pittsburgh and my Catholicism, because you just said a bunch of stuff that Catholics don't believe in the Bible, don't believe in Jesus. They worship Mary and saints, which is not true. Mm-hmm. There's this variations of misunderstandings that even Catholics don't understand. So I did a 10-year exploration very seriously of looking into all these things. And um, what I learned was there's a lot of great people and all the different world's religions. There's a lot of things that Christians have in common. And then that a lot of Christians spend all of their time and energy focusing on the things that they don't have in common, trying to convert you in a very judgmental, shaming, unloving way that makes you not want to have anything, not me in particular, but a lot of other people who have not had an experience of God's love, which comes through our life experiences, which comes through other people. And if you believe God created the heavens and the earth, It's not just God when you're on your knees with your hands folded or going to church service or a Bible study. God is everywhere and everything, even in your Buddhist and atheist and agnostic co-workers. And the experiences, even of the darkness you see at work, there is something in there to grow and learn from and where you can make a difference Mm -hmm. with how you behave. So we spend a lot of our time, generally speaking, about religiosity or churchianity, intellectually interpreting scriptures literally which not all scriptures should be interpreted literally. And you have to take it as a whole of all of scriptures because there are contradictions in scripture. And these are deeper conversations as well. But there's a lot of things that we have in common. And we spend all this time worrying about seeing some white bearded guy in a throne on the sky on the day we physically die, worried about defending and protecting my ticket to heaven over your ticket to heaven. Mm -hmm. Versus loving on each other, caring about each other, and learning about each other, if that makes sense. And I went really fast for a lot of different no. topics that could dive into different areas. It, no, 100%. I think you're, you're 
speaking to a, you're going to speak to a lot of people uh, and and hit a lot of different points here with that. One of the things uh, I thought was interesting that you said too was like how some people are you know you're you all have a lot in common and then but you're focused on the the things you don't have in common and when you start hating on each other it's like wasn't that kind of opposite of what you're supposed to be doing so it's just kind of funny exactly. how you're doing the opposite exact opposite of what you're supposed to <laughs> so yep exactly did um what about uh, do you have a, a lot of interactions as you're going through the kind of this journey with people of a completely different religion so whether it's um talking about like islam or you said buddhism or whatever else it might be do you come across that much or is there is there many people around at that time that are not some version of Christianity? Through the last, you know, I'm 48, and that journey started at 18 at the Air Force Academy, 2021 20, at Colgate, where I said, hey, I, by the way, back then I gave up TV for almost 13 years. I gave up TV and <laughs> I said, hey, anytime I'm not at football or not doing homework, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote pray. And prayer is a whole big topic too, like what really is prayer? I'm going to learn about meditation, which I started in high school on and off doing meditation from martial arts books for football, but meditation, breath work, contemplative practices, the mystical practices of the religions could be considered prayer. Um, I started diving into all those things, man. I lost, I'm going to lose tracks. I want to, there's so many different things I want to get into, but I did expose myself very intentionally and I look forward to when I sit next to the plane to somebody that's a Sikh or I have a, a class with a Jewish professor or a Muslim professor or things like that. Because if I could share a quick story, there's a famous, he's a psychologist and former monk and a contemplative teacher under Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton is a famous Catholic monk from the 60s that started mm. having dialogue with Buddhist monks and people went ape shit. Yeah. But in the 60s, during the Vietnam War, a lot of Christians started doing yoga and transcendental meditation, like because the Beatles were doing transcendental meditation. And uh, Thomas Keating is another Catholic monk who, monk who recently passed away, said, wait a second, Christians used to do meditation and these things that could be similar to the breath work and the yoga, but we moved away from it. There's a historical piece here yeah. where Christians, especially the desert mother and fathers, if you look that up, it used to be about spending time in silence, solitude, immersion in nature, and fasting from food. And these days, we can fast from technology to set the groundwork to have more of an experience of God or allow unconscious things to come up. But what we had was the period of the Enlightenment, if you remember that from history class, mm -hmm. where everything became the age of reason, that our brains are everything. And then we had the Protestant Reformation, where the churches started arguing, like a Catholic monk said, hey, this is BS that you can pay to short your, shorten your time in purgatory and get to heaven. <laughs> but then we start having Protestants, and then the king of England wants to get a divorce. So he's like, we're going to split and make Anglican. And so every time somebody disagrees with something intellectual, doctrine, rules, or a scripture interpretation, they make a new church. Yes. So Christianity in general moved away from things that could be considered meditation many forms of reflective, meditative prayer and spending time in silence in nature because of the Enlightenment and because of the Protestant Reformation. So if I could share a story about Thomas Merton, who's a famous Catholic monk in the 60s, yeah. who started talking to Buddhist monks, he trained someone, Jim Finley, 
who was, you know, at a time a monk under Thomas Merton and later became a trauma psychologist. So he's an expert in contemplative Christianity, also Buddhism, because he learned about Buddhism from Thomas Merton and dove into it after he left the Catholic Church for a while. And then he became a psychologist, went to Fuller Seminary, which is a Protestant seminary to learn psychology. And I used to go to his meditation group in Santa Monica when I first moved here or first moved to Los Angeles. And I didn't realize I had read this guy's books and how famous he was. But somebody got upset that he would quote Rumi. Rumi is a Muslim. He's a Muslim mystic. Okay. A lot of people quote Rumi and have no idea. And it could be a Christian that normally might trash talk or say Muslims are bad or I can't associate with yoga or Muslims. Rumi was a Muslim mystic. So he'd quote Rumi, he'd quote Buddhism. And some Catholic woman got really uptight and said, how can you, you know, you're a Catholic. You need to just say these Catholic things. And he goes, let me tell you a story. There was a documentary filmmaker that traveled the world for seven years to visit different aspects of the world's major religions. He would spend time with the religious groups. And after seven years of doing this documentary with different religions, somebody said, who's right? You just spent seven years of your life investigating it. And he said, you know, I could take the majority of people from each of the world's religions. So we're talking Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, mm-hmm. Sikh, on down the line, not Christian denominations. That's a whole other thing. There's 30,000 different Christian denominations and flavors and genres itself. But I could, he said he could take the majority of religious people and put them in an, a U.S. football stadium, like 100,000 people. They'd be screaming and yelling and fighting. Who's right? Who's going to heaven on the day they die? Just arguments, convert, proselytize, all that. But he could take the most influential people from each of the world's religions and put them in a small conference room, and there would be quiet, reverent respect for each other, and they would be asking each other questions. How do you grow closer to your God or your truth or your enlightenment? Yeah. Let's learn from each other. How, how can you grow? And I respect whatever it is that you believe. Yeah. So that's the contemplative. That's the mystical traditions. And I think that's the best way to describe what my journey has been like is I've met a lot of assholes and a lot of different religious groups. And I've met the most beautiful people and all of these different religious groups and denominations. And I had to back away from pressure on myself to figure out which church was right. Because my God, if only one church is right, how lonely is heaven going to be? Mm-hmm. And am I going to have to convert all of my friends and family to go to this one denomination? Yeah. So I hope that answered the question by sharing that story. Yeah, hundred percent. I and I think it it just puts things in a really good perspective that I've certainly never heard before. Um, there's a lot of themes in there. Uh, we could probably spin off ten different podcasts on a lot of those topics. I have so many questions about it. Uh, one of the things I, I like that you were talking about those um, the the kind of a focus on the individual and you're talking about like doing prayer or meditation and that's so opposite of what I want to say individualism means today where people it's all about gratification you know mm. satisfying themselves right now you look at victimhood like everything is just me 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 focus on me but you're talking about prayer and meditation and, and things along those lines. I've never heard of uh, individualism kind of spoken about like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of a, I, and I don't, I'm not the best with words when it comes to some of this stuff because this is 
pretty new to me yeah. thinking about these things. Uh, even when you're like talking about giving up TV, that's one of the things that I've done. Like I barely watch TV since I, between work, family, and running this podcast where I'm just trying to talk to as many good people as I can and, and learn from them, right? Like all these different perspectives. I barely have time to look at a TV. I'm always researching people because I want to yeah. know more. Mm-hmm. I want to see like, hey, how did that person get to do all these cool things in life, right? Like, yeah. what, how do we get on that trajectory? So yeah, no, it, and your answer is spot on. I think it's going to give a lot of people a unique perspective, but a different way to look at things. And the biggest thing too is asking questions. People need to get out there and ask questions rather than just screaming and shouting and saying, my point of view is right, or you know, you're mm-hmm. this kind of person, especially nowadays all the wars going on. Um, it's yeah. very easy to be divided. But if you just get in a room and ask people, like you're going to find you have 99% in common, uh, no matter what the topic is. And you know that little bit that's different, uh, incorporating that, right? And, and people have some different ideas, so you incorporate that. Um, maybe we could kind of talk a little bit about your police career too. I want to get into incorporating this in the policing aspect because you do a lot of work with law enforcement, first responders. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just tell us a bit about your career? So you medically retired. I'm wondering how, like how many years were you in policing and then what's the, the medical retirement part? So I was in about nine years. First two years are in Connecticut after I decided not to be a fed. Was a police officer in two departments in Connecticut. And I was all, I worked the midnight shift so I could be a strength coach at Yale okay. pretty much full time and doing sports ministry there. But even 23 years ago, I think it was in Connecticut, they were already charging cops for completely legit shootings and saying they were racist. And one department, mm-hmm. anytime we cleared leather, pulled our gun, had to do a report. You shouldn't wear frisk gloves during the day because it looks too aggressive. Like (laughs) it was already anti-cop in Connecticut and there was too many rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. And here I had all that tactical training and Tony Blower and Storm Mountain. And I found myself on calls where I should be pulling my gun, going hands on. And then people from other agencies are like, what are you doing? Well, I'm worried about my supervisor chewing my ass out. Yeah. Or doing something that he, and so I realized I was putting myself at risk like cops do now because they're scared to use appropriate force because I'm going to get an IA investigation or I'm going to get a district attorney pressing criminal charges on me or the city's going to be burning down and me and my family are going to be the ones getting a death threat and I may get fired even if it was an appropriate, legally justified use of force. Yeah. But now because of optics, things are not fair, even sometimes in the legal system. So, I started in Connecticut and realized that, wow, it's dangerous. I'm putting myself at risk because there's too many rules. Also, there was no real SWAT teams in Connecticut. A lot of great cops, but no knock. Back then, I did some training with different SWAT teams up there. And I was like, dude, this is like old school people still shooting Weaver. And I had been training with these SF guys and major SWAT teams. So I had a college football buddy. Very rare for Colgate people to become police officers. But I had a good friend from Colgate that was a cop in the DC area at an agency that was super progressive. I went down there, met one of his supervisors that used to be SWAT, jump out, eventually was my SWAT commander, big into fitness. They were a proactive agency in the DC area. It was known like, don't mess around in this county. Like, oh no, like the cops can chase for any reason, pit for any reason, take you to jail for just about anything. And they would punish you. 
that was a reputation back then. So I took a huge pay cut, had to repeat a six-month academy because I wanted to be somewhere that you could really do your job and be proactive, which even that agency now, fast forward, is one of these apparently super liberal cops get in trouble for everything. So people stop being proactive. And they've had some cases in the national news in the past of hammering cops for things that were ridiculous. And I'm not even going to waste time getting into it. But when I went there, it was a you know high speed and even going through the academy, amazing firearms instruction, the EVOC training, brand new Crown Vicks with their own track, beating the crap out of them, pit maneuvers, <laughs> like just getting it. In Connecticut, we were in like a 1980 LTD with some ex-race car driver smoking a cigarette, sitting shotgun, hitting a brake pedal he had on his side just to yeah. make the car like go out of control. It was so bad. The shooting was bad. The DT, arrest and control, martial arts. And the public doesn't understand that either. That's a whole other topic. I saw in Connecticut after training with Tony Blauer and Storm Mountain that the shooting and fighting and scenario training, which creates training scars when Dustin Solomon, somebody you should look into and have on your podcast about the brain science of shooting, combat shooting, Dusty Solomon, I can connect you with him. But we create training scars by, okay, now we're going to do a scenario. First of all, the motor skills aren't developed with appropriate martial arts and shooting. And then we're going to throw you into a scenario and then kill you, like make you feel bad and yell at you. It creates scars in our brains and with the, the different chemicals and adrenaline being released, that's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Like most cops, I don't know of any agency that gets enough motor skills that you're proficient in martial arts and handcuffing and combat shooting, let alone making decisions with multiple tools under stress in the dark with somebody attacking you. So I'm jumping all over the place here, but I realized even in my first academy, oh my God, most cops don't have training to handle things. This is bad. So at least the next agency I went to, the academy was fairly good, you know, and we could be fairly proactive. So I graduated top of my class, which allowed me to pick my station. So I took what was called, you know, the busy, fast or ghetto station. I do my FTO and I get recruited to a patrol squad that they would never allow this anymore. But the lieutenant was somebody who had never been married, Marine Corps, long-term undercover narc, his whole life is being a cop. And it's like his nickname was the beast and he'd slam the table after roll call or briefing, whatever you called it. It'd be like, feed the beast. He did not care about traffic. (laughs) You take the calls, you be proactive, go lock up bad guys. I want good arrests. He'd show up on calls, get in pursuits with us, pit people with us. I mean, it was all about be proactive cop. And you had to be nominated by him, stand in front of the squad. They'd fire questions, break your balls. And then they voted right in front of you, whether you got to be on the squad or not. So it was an evening shift squad of all these aggressive, a lot of athletic, a lot of ex-military. Like It wasn't going to be the cops that want to be lazy or wanted to hide Mm -hmm. or didn't want to get after it or wanted to sit on a stop sign or give speeding tickets. It was it was very effective, proactive, meaningful police work. You know, so that was the patrol squad. Uh, I made SWAT, our SWAT team very pretty quickly, I think within 2 years, our SWAT team uh, was it's a full-time team, but some people called it collateral in California, some we called it supplemental. So there were so many guys that were like varsity where they get to lift weights, shoot every day, do the recons for the warrants and develop the training for the rest of the team. So I'm like full-time patrol, but I get a take-home car and I have all the SWAT gear 
And if your boss allows you, you get to go on call outs. You get two days, okay. at least two, at least two training days a month. And if there's other schools and your boss is cool, which my boss was super cool and pro police. So I got to go to as much SWAT training as I was asked to go to. Um, those were kind of my, that was my dream job. I'm on a great patrol squad. I'm on a great SWAT team. Eventually I'll be on the full-time slot that, you know, on the full-time team as people retire and move on. Well, I eventually get hurt during a SWAT workout and my boss doesn't let me go to the SWAT team light duty. That's what I wanted. He's like, no, you need to be like command staff or chief someday. You need to diversify your background. So I went to major crimes computer crimes and was miserable, but he wanted me to get some investigative experience for my... That's a vast departure. <laughs> uh, and oh my, that they were like, you're going to be so disappointed we serve warrants. People pulled in the driveway, popped their trunk and were putting their vest on in the driveway of the people were serving warrants with no perimeter, such dan- like it, there are yeah. cops that, you know, in certain units. Anyways, sadly... During that time frame where I'm going through medical problems and surgeries, we had two officers murdered at a station. Mm. And it's a longer story. But then I, I was already on peer support. And I started peer support. I didn't know what it was, but a very religious, a more religious cop at my station. I was known as the religious cop that cussed a lot. People knew I was religious. They got on the talk around channel and said, hey, Padre, hey, Zeus, when victim services or a chaplain couldn't come, which was most of the time, and that's a whole other topic, police chaplaincy, my boss would send me, and sometimes dispatch would send me to gnarly calls and other districts where they needed some kind of psychological, spiritual support. Um, so I got to develop that aspect, too, through the peer support. But this religious cop said, hey, Matt, most of the people on peer support are like day shift admin or older women that show up to the busy stations and want to hug you and tell you it's okay to cry and nobody's going to listen to them. Yeah. Like you work the busy station. You're a Some people, a lot of people know you're like a Georgetown strength coach. This was before I was SWAT that I got on. Eventually I'm on SWAT. Well, now you're a SWAT guy. It's like, at least you might have a foot in the door for somebody to talk to you. Yeah. Right. Because you're like a real cop. So that's how I got into peer support. And when those two cops got murdered, I got pulled full time to help revamp and redevelop our peer support team because they had gotten rid of the psychologist to save money yeah. in a large agency. And even like today, a lot of peer support teams, very ineffective, reactionary only to PTSD, addiction, critical incident, suicidal ideation, or getting in trouble, show up, do a debrief. If there's one person in the debrief, whether that's a supervisor or somebody on your squad that you don't trust or from the incident, nobody's going to talk. And if the mental health professional and or the chaplain's there, you've never seen them or they're people that are not culturally competent and only show up to talk to the brass or after a critical incident, everybody says, I'm good to go. Well, and that's what Dr. Dr. Springer talks about that. Mm-hmm. She says that about the trust, right? You got to have that trust in there and, and they, they start calling her doc because then they, yes. they want to talk to her. So yeah, that, that credibility piece is, is massive, Yeah, right? It's hard to talk to someone who's just going to, come in and tell you everything's okay or going to be okay. And you're like, that's not what you need right now, necessarily. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, you're 100% on. Uh, sorry, I kind of jumped in there. You can no, keep going. <laughs> that's all right. So many different rabbit holes we could go down. So I got pulled to help full-time to peer support, to do debriefs and spend time with people that were involved with finishing the fight with this guy that had murdered two cops. Yeah. So a lot of 
sad but great experience being involved in such a critical incident and also getting to revamp and redevelop a peer support program under a major that was clueless and an idiot that eventually became the chief that helped destroy that department, at least from what everybody said after I left. Mm. And he almost he wanted to hire a drug and alcohol counselor to be our lead psychologist, not understanding the difference between specialties and a drug and alcohol (laughs) counselor is not always a a license. I I mean, nightmare. But I had a great, great lieutenant on peer support who is now a chief of police of another DC agency that I still keep in touch with, who I could tell like, hey, man, these are some of the things we should do and the people we should bring on board. And then he would go and deal with this clueless major that thought he knew everything and was, there's nicknames for him that I cannot say (laughs) online that people would say. And there was rumors that he had never had a felony arrest. And that dude ends up a commander and a chief of a large department. Wow. And people say it's not a rumor. They say it's legit. You know what? It's still it's still a problem in policing. There's pe- there's many people in positions they shouldn't be in, right? It's not the right person yep. for the right reasons. Uh, they get ahead somehow, though. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, we're pe- we're picking people for political and management reasons. So, yeah, that was a big deal. Peer support in D.C. If you've heard of Police Week, I also got to every year mm-hmm. deal with the families of the fallen officers and their children. So a lot of experience getting immersed in police week every year. Um, And then while I'm hurt doing the peer support full time, some former 75th Ranger that went through my police academy class with me, like when he was 40, like what a badass, like did a whole career in the Rangers, you know, lots of combat deployments. He's fishing buddies with another commander and somehow brings up while he's fishing. Hey, do you know there's some cop from this station and on SWAT that's also a division one strength coach. And the commander's like, no, I didn't know that. He's like, bring him to the academy to evaluate our fitness program. Okay. So I get pulled from peer support to the police academy to evaluate the fitness program. And I thought they wanted me to do research. And so I made this huge folder. I watched all the fitness for the recruits and for in-service and this and that. I do all this research. I go to the supervisors and they're like, it's just overwhelming. And I'm like, dude, this is bad. Yeah. Police fitness is bad. And I kind of critiqued it as best I could. And there were cadets. Cadets are 18 to 21 year olds Mm -hmm. that prior to being able to be a police officer, they're kind of like interns paid, go to community college and they would go to the gym for three days a week as part of their job, but they didn't make them do anything. And while I'm at the academy doing this, like evaluating and giving feedback, I was like, Hey, why don't you let me train the cadets? And so I, they're like, you want to deal with those pain in the ass, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, like they should train. So I created structured programs like division one athletes started training them and they were crushing the recruits. I had them climbing the rope that the SWAT team was part of the SWAT team test. I had them doing gross motor combatives for their conditioning, speed, agility, teaching them how to squat, deadlift, doing plyometrics. And then they're like, wait a second. Other people are like, Maybe we do need to change things. So long story short, I end up eventually, they had to change the SOP and the GOs because I hadn't been on long enough to actually be a full-time academy instructor, but they changed things, brought me on. And then I was in charge of fitness and became the wellness coordinator and implemented division one light strength conditioning programs. Uh, One of the things you kind of, how you're talking to is there's the kind of the proactive versus reactive approach. Mm-hmm. This is in the thing that you uh, sent me ahead of time. And 
talk, so we're talking about like the physical standards, but also uh, mental health aspects. So a bunch of stuff's kind of overlapping, but I like it because one of the things you're talking about here, and this is a big gripe in policing right now, is talking about lowered standards. We're going to like adult education. Don't yell at anybody. Don't f- have stress uh. days. Don't uh, physically exert anything on them. So, um, so what you're doing though, you're looking at creating these programs, right? You're talking about the Div One, and you're making them climb ropes and do all these things. But you're setting them up for a better future, right? Like they're going to be mm-hmm. physically healthier, mentally stronger. That's doing that proactive piece that uh, I think is missing from a lot of things nowadays, but especially when it comes to the police and police culture, like our fitness tests, at least here and any other service I know of, um, it's not necessarily mandatory. Like if you get a bad grade on it, they basically just tell you, well, you need to be more fit. And that's the last you ever hear of it. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't make it. So it's like, Hey, if you're going to be operational, you need to be this level. Yeah, for not only your safety but other people's safety. But then, if we look at it on the mental health side, going through those shared experiences with the team, um, you know, going through the hurt and the pain, uh, that prepares you for the road. That prepares you for all the tough things you're going to mm-hmm. see. So when we're making things lighter and softer for everybody, like we're almost setting them up to, we're going to have these people who have to uh, go off on stress leave all the time, right? or retire early with a lot of different injuries. Yep. So I like what you're saying about how it's like, you know, if we just do some of the work on the front end, and we know what the, what's in the job. Why aren't we preparing them appropriately, right? And that comes down to like politics and a lot of different things. But yeah, so I really like that theme in there Yeah. Uh, that you're kind of on. So um, one thing I do want to ask is just... How much, um, when you're talking about the, the chaplaincy and, and doing this aspect, when you're going through your policing career, are you kind of incorporating that? Like, are, are people coming to you and seeking out any kind of spiritual advice? Or are you, when you're doing the peer support, are you like tying that in somehow into it? It was that known piece. Like, Matt's the religious cop that cusses a lot, and we like him. <laughs> like, I got, you know, at one, of, at one of those police officers' funerals, a sergeant, who I had had discussions about his kids and helping them or his daughter pick out colleges and things like that. He, he was so excited to introduce me to his wife and kids like, this is Matt, the religious guy that cusses like a sailor. And I went home that night like, hey, God, is this good? The, whatever. So I was known as somebody very much like my, like I would say my father. People knew I was the guy that meditated, that took time to do all these different prayer groups, that did sports ministry at Yale and Georgetown. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't do it now, but back then I had like a bumper sticker on my truck. Real love, real men love Jesus. I would never do that now because that turns people off, but maybe I did wear religious stuff, but I didn't judge, preach, evangelize anyone. Mm, And I was approachable. So a lot of people were comfortable talking to me as they are now. Cause they're like, Matt's kind of a religious guy, but he's not going to push it on you. And he doesn't judge you. And he loves everybody the same. So if you want to ask questions about spirituality or religion as a cop, as a coach, now as a chaplain, people are fairly comfortable because the feedback I'll get, especially when I was at a rehab for cops and firemen, where a lot of people were 
self-identified atheists or agnostic was I like talking to you because I feel like I'm seen, heard, understood, not judged. You really care and you don't give me bullshit, unsolicited advice yeah. or try to push anything on me. And really as a chaplain, and I believe my calling to ministry, not everybody's, is me. And we could go into, it's too much, but there's like even a Supreme Court case in America. A chaplain is a, a ministry of presence because I'm a Catholic and not every cop's going to be a Christian or Catholic. I need to ask questions about your faith, your spirituality, your values, and how do I help you live out your values better, whether you're quote religious or not. And, and you're, you're tapping into people's genuine curiosity. Mm-hmm. So if you're forcing stuff on people, and this is no different than say like a, a parent to a child, you, you're like, you're going to be this, you're going to go this direction. I, you know, I'm going to be the crazy hockey parent and force you to go to play hockey. And then your <laughs> kid just resents you later on. Uh, it, it, but if you give them the options, you say like, hey, there's this thing here. If you're interested, look over here, ask questions about it. Or what you're doing, you're sitting there, you listen or ask questions about them because people like talking about you know themselves and, and aspects of their life. You're tapping into that genuine curiosity. Mm-hmm. So that brings them to you because it's, it's more, it's real, right? And they want to learn about these things. And if you let people kind of come to you, I, I find that's always a better way to do it than, you know, like you're saying, evangelizing things and forcing things down people's throats. Um, so yeah, that, that that makes sense, what you're talking about. Yeah, I moved away from any Jesus bumper sticker or t-shirt or even telling people I'm, I'm Catholic for sure. Because I learned mm-hmm. early on, like at Air Force and Colgate, those funny things that people say, Catholics don't believe in the Bible. Catholics don't really have a personal relationship with Jesus. And they worship Mary and the saints. And those are conversations in and of themselves. So even if somebody knew I was a quote Christian, people wouldn't know that I was a Catholic and it could be years down the road. And then I would tell somebody, and this has happened many, many times in my life where then people would be like, what? You're Catholic? Yeah. But you know, Jesus and you know, scripture. I'm like, what? What? They're not supposed to? Like we all have these biases (laughs) and we haven't taken the time as the quote says, to walk a mile in someone else's moccasins, just like people don't take the time to truly understand what police officers are going through right now and are jumping to conclusions based on the media and social media mm-hmm. and being very dualistic, which is a whole other topic you brought up a little bit that would be a whole other podcast. But yeah, so long story short, my faith and spirituality has always been a part of my life as an adult, and it's known to people but I don't push it on people. And my hope would be is if I think Matt really loves me and cares about me. And by the way, like as a man and as a cop, I had no problem hugging my buddies and say, I love you. And at first people are like, dude, we (laughs) hug each other as football players. Go ahead and express your freaking damn emotions. It doesn't mean you're weak, broken, or a (laughs) P-U-S-S-Y. But, you know, it's always been a part of my life. And I hope that if you feel like I've been kind or fair or loved on you or helped you that you know where it comes from without me needing to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know what? Um, one of the things that you also had sent ahead of time that I thought was a really good way of putting things is uh, thinking about adversity, trauma, cumulative stress as emotional weightlifting, mm-hmm. right? So rather than telling people they're broken or you're, you're a victim and you should just sit there and kind of 
wallow <laughs> away. And yeah. um, so I thought that was a, another way to look at it. Like, yeah, you know, there's the mental strength, just like there's physical strength. You have to go through adversity to be better. Yeah. There's no way around it. You're going to have hard times. But if you sit there and say, you know, uh, woe is me and, you know, everybody's against me, like that, that doesn't do you any good. Mm-mm. Everybody else is still living their life. So, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. You're, you're 100% spot on with this. Well, there's science and research behind if you perceive things in life as a threat versus perceiving them as a challenge to overcome. If you have the victim mindset where everything's a threat or you're supposed to be fearful, you are less successful in overcoming adversity. Yeah. Challenges and obstacles will come. And anybody that wants a bigger bench press either has to do more reps, more sets, put more weight on the bar, more time under tension, change different variables. So the body has to adapt to get stronger at the bench press. You're going to have to put in hard effort to get better at any sports skill. What happens very often in life is we learn the most important lessons through when I'm talking psychologically, emotionally, our hearts and spiritually, which it's going to be through great love and great suffering. Yeah. And we don't always choose the great suffering. So that's somebody puts more weight on the bar whatever it is, life, the universe. And you're going to have to, you know, either try to make that rep and get stronger or walk away from the bench and never overcome it and never grow. Yeah. If you got like, we're rated an hour, but if you got a few extra minutes, I got a couple other questions. If, uh, or do you I got go? all the time you want? <laughs> okay. No, I don't got to go. Um, I just, cause, uh, man, we got so much stuff here that I, I'm very interested in. Uh, <laughs> with all the stuff that's kind of going on right now, you know, right from BLM to George Floyd to defund to whatever other political narratives there are out there, I, I imagine you find your work load is increasing or do you have more people coming to you? You see more people saying, I, you know, I'm kind of lost in this job of policing. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And if so, what do you tell them? Well, to your last question, everybody's completely individual. There's no one size fits all prescription for fitness, nutrition, sleep, supplements, stress management, self-regulation, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. So everything's very individual, but obviously the increases in people leaving the profession altogether, retiring early, lateral transfers through the roof people losing the meaning and purpose on the job, which then leads to mental health, family, and addiction issues. I mean, yeah, everything's increasing. More ambushes on cops, more prosecuting cops, less prosecuting criminals. I don't know if you know, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department had four suicides in a 24-hour period this week. There's been other agencies. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything's increasing. And as far as whether people would be coming to me or not, whether it's a chaplain, peer support, or mental health professional, there's more people that need help than there's people that are doing the helping. And we say we care, Mm, but departments don't pay for psychologists to go to briefings, do ride-alongs, spend time at the station. They're overwhelmed, or there's police psychologists that are not culturally competent, or they're police psychologists that are just contracted that you call on the phone, or you have to jump through tons of hoops And those hoops may be stigmatized as it is of hurting your career, getting put on the rubber gun squad and, you know, taken off the street, or we're not going to cover the cost of the therapy sessions or just give you a few therapy sessions. Yeah. There's so many hurdles and obstacles to getting therapy. 
someone, most of, I don't know of any one department might pay their chaplain. So stereotypically, too many chaplains are older, out of touch clergy that never ride along, never go to briefings or roll calls, don't really understand the cops or firemen, only show up after a critical incident and then talk to the bosses. Yeah. Yeah. And then get involved with debriefs. So, and peer support, if they're not either from the station or they're not the cops that are trusted because they've worked a hardcore patrol shift, investigative or specialty unit. Well, the people that get in the shit, I don't know how, any other way to say it, the people that get in the shit a lot of the times aren't going to open up to a cop that's been day shift and some, the neighbor pooped on the dog's yard call type yeah. thing <laughs> and, and school crossings. Yeah. So we need to invest more time and money into paying for chaplains, psychologists, mental health professionals, and wellness programs, not peer support that's only reactive to PTSD addiction, suicidal ideation, you get in trouble. I equate that to, we're going to wait till a cop has a mouthful of black cavities. And I'm going to say, hey, there's this dentist that nobody trusts. And I hear he's like a real jerk and doesn't even give you that much anesthesia, but he's going to yank out all your teeth. You want to go? Yeah. Versus <laughs> teaching cops mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, how do you brush and floss throughout your career with the adversity, the stress, the trauma, so that you can keep growing. And then when we see a cavity developing, we can repair it versus having to yank out the whole tooth. Or, you know, there's another story of somebody that I'll speed the story up, but like somebody's fishing and they rescue multiple people that are drowning. And if you tell the story, you draw it out more. Well, eventually somebody comes down the stream drowning and he starts walking upstream and the crowd that watched him save the people before says, where are you going? You're not going to save this person. He goes, no, I'm going upstream to find out why in the hell all these people that can't swim are entering these rough waters. Yeah. I'm going to put up a fence and a sign and say rough waters ahead require swimming lessons before you get in these waters. Addressing the root cause of the problem. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's exactly what you I mean, that's the thing that we, I think we lack uh, the the ability to do nowadays where people just want to deal with the superficial. Mm-hmm. Just like put a Band-Aid on it or take care of this thing and move on to the next. Instead of doing the work, putting in the effort, what is the root cause of the problem? And that involves having real conversations, right? Mm-hmm. Actually talking about what's really causing this because sometimes that's going to hurt people's feelings or whatever that, the case might be. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, that's definitely a, a big part of that. Um, you uh, just as we're coming up to the end here, I want to make sure we get to talk about some of the projects that you have. Um, so, can you run us through maybe some of the the things you got going on? Um, I know one of the things I read in your bio was Pew Jitsu. Yeah, <laughs> maybe you could tell us a bit about that too. So the Pew Jitsu, uh, the first, we've had it approved at one department two years in a row, and then it got yanked. So a lot of my projects get approved and not approved. But the concept of Pew Jitsu is, first of all, all cops need more martial arts and more tactical shooting, not qualifications. Yeah, One, two, three, four times a year, punching holes on paper with no stress and broad daylight. That's not gunfighting. That does not translate. That's like taking a little kid, putting them right in front of a goal and letting them kick the soccer ball in the goal. Yes. Like 10 or 20 times. Then five years later, in the middle of a big game, you're going to put somebody in a soccer game where they have to sprint up and down the field with a defender on them and a goalie in front of that net and tell them to try to score. 
And I don't know if that analogy works, but that's what law enforcement is, where it's we study the playbook for football, we watch some football film, we play a couple flag football games, and then I don't know if it's two, three, five years from now, I I I, I say today's your Super Bowl. Yes. Full pads, you're going against a division one or an NFL guy. It's on for real. And you've never really been punched in the face or wrestled somebody full contact that's trying to grab your gun. So um those things get me really upset that we're not, you know, addressing that stuff more. And I kind of lost track of what exactly your question was. I got off track because that's something I'm super passionate about. The projects. Yeah, so the projects of Pujitsu. <laughs> You're not wrong, by the way. That's all the same issues in Canada. A hundred percent. It's like, we are not doing the right things for the right reasons. But yeah, no, let's talk about your projects. (laughs) So we need to integrate training more just like sports. So let's have some martial arts. Let's have some tactical combat gunfighting training for patrol, not just the SWAT teams. Let's integrate breath work, gratitude journaling, uh, different forms of meditation, mindfulness, yoga, tai chi, qigong. There's many forms of mindful movement, self-regulation, training the parasympathetic nervous system. And you integrate it all in the same day. Because if you just put on either elective training or pay for training like meditation, yoga, post-traumatic growth, most people aren't, or the people that need it the most aren't going to sign up. Like let's attract people to get more of the motor skills development they need with shooting and fighting. Mm-hmm. And also teach them how to keep themselves calm in the middle of a fight, but also when they're off duty and driving home or when they're triggered in the middle of a call, even if it's just simple breath work. So Pujitsu is the idea of integrating something as simple as breath work and yoga with shooting and some martial arts. It doesn't have to be jujitsu. I mean, some, some people, jujitsu is the only martial arts for police work. That's, I don't believe that either. Mm. There's no one size fits all of any of this stuff. And that's a red flag if somebody's pushing one size. So that's my idea that if I could get more fundraising, if there's anybody out there that knows wealthy people or companies that can donate to a nonprofit, I want to do more pujitsu. I do outdoor retreats and there's science, nature therapy, forest bathing. They do it in Japan. Yeah, Being in nature will lower your cortisol and calm your parasympathetic nervous system and do very healing things. And if you take cops away from the TV and the Wi-Fi and you take them out, even like like we go to Missouri, for instance, we do clay pigeon shooting, ATV side-by-sides, horseback riding, fishing, like five days of unplugging and chilling out in nature, very organically, things come up of these are things on the job that have bothered me. These are things that I need to go home and address with my family, my nutrition, my health, my sleep. And if you have some people there, that are like veterans or other first responders as mentors or elders or a culturally uh, competent clinician or chaplain or people that understand health and wellness. I would. These retreats are life-changing. And if yeah. I could have more funding, take more cops on outdoor activity, nature-based retreats. And then I also had to speed through some projects. A psychologist was paying out of pocket. I get paid for nothing. I actually have financial problems. My pension sucks. Mm. I am going in debt and using my savings to do this because I believe so much in what I do and the cops do deserve and need help. I had a psychologist for a while trying to get departments on board, but she paid where I'd go to a, a wellness clinic that had a room that I could rent of sauna and cold plunge. And so she would refer cops that had been through critical incidents, were stressed out and were her patients or other psychologist patients. 
hey, we got this retired cop, former strength coach, wellness guy. You want to go spend some time with them? They'd look at the website. We talk on the phone. Not all of them. because Some people are like, you're the chaplain thing. and like, oh, hell no. I want nothing to do with that <laughs> or anything wellness or health, right? Like people are hurting so bad and we've stigmatized either, quote, getting help or opening up so bad yeah. that people that need it the most won't get it. But those that did, we would... You know, and even if I don't have the money, I work out with cops. I go shooting with cops. I go walk on the beach, hang out, get coffee, get meals. So it's not a formal come to an office and have a time limit where they can start opening up. And if they open up, we can spend two, three, four, five, six hours yep. because it's not like therapy where it's one hour. I, I get comfortable. Then I got to shut down. Then I come back in a week or two. But what we were doing at the wellness studio is the first half hour was in a room where we did sauna and cold plunge together. So do cold plunge first, explain the benefits. We sit in the sauna for almost the half hour, heat up, chit chat, let it go wherever it may go, cold plunge again. And then I would teach them breath work, very basic breath work. We'd split up and do sensory deprivation tanks. Have you ever heard of a float tank? Yep. So like Navy SEALs and professional athletes, we had it at the gym that I trained pro athletes at. I did float tank every day. And because of my experience in meditation and with neurofeedback, I understand that it puts you in a very meditative state without the training and completely relaxes your body and allows unconscious things to come up and put your brain like in a theta state where you're relaxed and it's very healing. We would, you know, split up, do the float tank. And then afterwards I'd say, Hey, you want to get a meal? And there, and because of my digestive and some other issues I have from my permanent disability from surgeries with work comp that I never should have gotten and Mm -hmm. almost killed me. Those are other stories that at least in the US, you get often very crappy medical care if you even get it for on the job injuries. But we would go eat at an organic place because I, I eat like super strict, but then I could be like, hey, and you know, your gut health impacts your mental health and your cognitive function and your immune system too. Try to integrate a little less and have a healthy meal. And usually after doing cold plunge sauna, the float tank, it turns into a peer support or a, a spiritual direction chaplain type session where it would be two, three, four hours of them opening up about whatever's stressing them now. And then very often like this and my peer support chaplain working at the rehab and people's stories start connecting to, oh, I thought it was just this call or this relationship or this injury. Now that I've started therapy or taking care of myself or even just did this with you, now I'm thinking about this that happened five years ago, this seven years ago, these calls this that happened in the military, this when my parents got divorced, or this when I got bullied. And then we can start talking about what I call the misery cup overflowing and try to connect the dots for them and tell you know help them identify, these are things you should go back and talk to the therapist or psychologist about. Mm. And then if they want to talk about whether it's, I, I let them, I don't tell people what to do. People may ask about nutrition, meditation, fitness, sleep, There's so many things that contribute to mental health or substance abuse. So I kind of let it be organic and they guide the conversation. And if I have either suggestions, experience, training, or education, I share it. If I have, hey, listen to a Uberman podcast or listen to Father Richard Rohr about this spirituality. Here's a good book. Give them suggestions. Or what other professionals can I refer them to to get help in these different areas? So that's something else that I, I was doing and I do from time to time, but I just don't have the funding either. The funding is like the biggest piece, but for free, yeah. any cop that wants to spend time with me can, 
And you can take whatever you want from my background in sports psychology, strength conditioning, tactical training, nutrition, and 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 I I can tie it all into spirituality, which we didn't even define. But to me, all of these things still are ministry and taking care of the totality of the human being, police officer that's been so dehumanized mm. in our mm. current culture um, that we need. There's got to be people out there that let them know that they're seen and heard and that we love and appreciate them. And I wish we could do more pugitsu, more outdoor retreats, more wellness things and training cops on the parasympathetic nervous system. Like Kevin Gilmartin, Emotional Survival for Law yeah. Enforcement, like super popular book, great guy, veteran, former cop, psychologist. He identifies hypervigilance and cortisol and he talks about working out a little bit. He identifies and makes people aware of the problem, but we, we don't even do enough of his type training and he's retiring. There's not enough people out there explaining that, but we can go so much further in the proactive brushing and flossing of teeth and teaching the swimming lessons mm-hmm. for our mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health. And that's what I try to do individually and collectively as I spend time in the trenches, one-on-one or in small groups, riding around, hanging out at the stations or spending time off duty with cops. Well, and uh, actually, Gil Martin's coming up to Edmonton at the end of the month. I think it's November 28th. So I'm going to that session. This is from, uh, it's like a whole day. Uh, the service, uh, police service here and the RCMP, I think they both kind of chipping in on it, but somebody's paying for him to come up here. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'll have to let you know how that one goes too. He's amazing in person. I've yeah. done two of that. Two oh, of really? those with him. He's okay. amazing. All right. Yeah. I'll try and, yeah, uh, yeah hopefully I can maybe convince him to come on this show at some point. Uh, but yeah, I, I like the work that you're doing. I think more people need to kind of be reaching out and asking questions of people like you, right? That have gone through these experiences. Because that's that's the experience is what I think gives you the biggest credibility. I mean, we could just read books mm-hmm. and then offer our opinions or claim to be you know an expert in something. But the, that actually having gone through it, it is, uh, I don't think there's anything else that can kind of substitute for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is most of your stuff on your website? Like if people go there, they can see a lot of the projects? Yeah, there's explanations of my mission, Yeah, my background, more of my story. There's lots of other podcast interviews, some media I've been in, all of that. Great. And if people were to have money and want to donate, and if they're from the States and they know of any foundations at their companies, Mm-hmm. Or people that do donate to things like I, if you believe in anything I've talked about and think that that cops should have that, I deal with cops across the all of the United States. I can't say I've dealt with a lot of Canadians other than on Instagram. Canadian cops chit chat with me. Okay, but I'm not just in Southern California. I serve cops across the country, and I, the hardest thing is getting fundraising yeah. or donations because, especially in Southern California. It's so political that I'm a I'm a white retired cop that helps mostly police officers. Uh, so it turns into even people that say they support the police still criticizing the police because crime is now up in Southern California. And now it's still the cops' fault. You're in a tough area, that's for sure. Yeah, California. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, it kind of brings us to the end of the time. Uh, I want to say thanks for coming on. I think what you're doing is very important work. I think people need to... Um, honestly, better themselves in a lot of respects, and take the time to uh, not not gratify themselves, but be better, do better, 
kind of look inward and say, you know, where can I be of more service to others? Um, if someone's listening that can help you out with the funding, I mean, even better. Uh, so we'll see if we can help you out on that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on uh, on the show. And we'll look to get you back on because there's a lot of other questions I do have. I would love to be back on because mm-hmm. there's things about service to others and community that is so important and backed by science as far as healing and growth that we didn't even get into. And even what you said about influencing others, I have a story about a retreat. I used to put retreats on with some colleagues on Orca Island off the coast of Washington, Mm -hmm. little cabins on the ocean and a firefighter. And I had a conversation on the plane ride back to LA. And he's like, all these things in this retreat, I'm going to go teach my family. I'm going to go teach the guys at the firehouse. And I had forgot what I told him, but the next year we're on the plane ride out. He goes, here's my notebook from what you told me what to do. And it said, W-O-Y-O-S-F. Wow. He goes, here's a whole notebook of what I've done in the last year, Matt, based on what you taught me. I said, I didn't teach you that. Maybe Dr. Bucknell did. He goes, yeah, we're on the plane. And I told you I was going to go teach everything from the retreat to my family and firehouse. <laughs> and you go, hey, work on your own shit first. Get your own W-O-Y-O-S-F. Work on our own stuff first. We can only know others as deeply as we know ourselves. Pain that is not transformed is transmitted. If you don't heal what hurts you, you will bleed on others that did not cut you. Pain shared is pain divided. Joy shared is joy multiplied. I mean, each of those quotes you can go into, but we cannot truly help others unless we look in the mirror and deal with our own stuff first. And we're like you said, if we're living, walking the talk, practicing what we preach, there's a better chance that somebody might ask yep. a question or be influenced by us. And that's not just religion. That's nutrition, working out, going to therapy, meditating, doing yoga, taking your wife or girlfriend out more and more time with the kids. Like role model it is influencing people more than talking about it. So if you're the psych, the chaplain, or the peer support that goes around lecturing people, but they know your life is a train wreck, like you're not influential. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, thank you for being on the show. Hang on the line. We'll chat just after this. 